WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with Chad Sell, creator of the Eisner-nominated graphic novel Cardboard Kingdom, about a group of neighborhood kids who build an entire make-believe empire over the course of a summer. Chad's got another graphic novel due out next year, Doodleville, plus a Cardboard Kingdom sequel in 2021, so he's a busy guy. Uh, we talked about all his work, his uh, RuPaul's Drag Race fandom, and how early image comics can warp a young mind. Uh, meanwhile, what's going on over at WMQComics.com? So much, you guys. Uh, if you haven't seen our top picks for the week, we're really into Boom Studios' Once and Future, uh, the new series from Kieran Gillen and Dan Mora, and we explain why that is in this week's Sunday editorial, which, if you subscribe to the Weekly Q newsletter, you could get on Friday, two whole days before Sunday. Uh, and Will Nevin's got an interview with writer Elliot Rahal that really goes deep, not just on his comics like Hotline Special and his upcoming Midnight Vista, but on who he is as a person and how he deals with stuff like anxiety and imposter syndrome. Uh, it's a must-read. And, of course, we are hip-deep in all the hox pox goings on as we attempt to make sense of the recent retcon of Moira McTaggart. Uh, all that is waiting for you over at WMQComics.com. But for now, here are me and Matt and Chad. So, Chad, we usually like to start off by asking our guests, you know, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading when you got into the medium? Um, I read late 80s, early 90s superhero comics, a bunch of Marvel stuff, early Spider-Man, X-Men. Um, you know, one of the biggest memories of my childhood reading was, like, the launch of Jim Lee, uh, Chris Claremont, 90s X-Men. Um, you know, like that era and early image was mm -hmm. like burned into my childhood brain. <laughs> um, did you, did you end up following those, those artists over to image? Yeah. I mean, I read lots and lots of those image comics. I mean, I was just recently looking through a lot of my old note, uh, notebooks and sketchbooks, um, for, uh, my next book. And I was like shocked at just like how, much I was just clearly ripping off all of the garish 90s like styles and costumes that I saw um, just like completely you know facepalm like oh my god <laughs> what was I thinking um, you know just like skimpy ridiculous outfits for men and women and just like all like the worst gross stuff like giant guns that didn't make any sense and giant knives and blades and like it just was, I was such a creature of the '90s, um, and it yeah. So how many pouches per character? Oh man, um, it probably varied from drawing to drawing. You know, like that. Those kind of details are impossible to keep straight. <laughs> yep. So, so the, the Rob Liefeld model of pouches. Got it. Exactly. Yep. Giant guns and no feet. It was a, it was a naive time, Chad. We were we were all you know who who knew better? Who knew? Well, right. And to to me, to being so new to comics and being so young, I just thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. You know, a lot of those early image comics, like Eric Larson, uh, or the early artists, you know, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, um, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, like they they were all just so huge to me, and like they're they're uh over the top like rendering and shading and hatching and like giant disproportionate like musculature it just all like that's like how i saw the human form for a long time mm -hmm. uh, 
So uh, you won uh, a McDuffie Award this year for, for uh, uh, the McDuffie Award for Kids Comics uh, for your graphic novel, Cardboard Kingdom. First off, congratulations. Uh, did you, you know, get to attend the award ceremony in, in uh, Michigan and everything? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, that was like a really special event because um, I actually – so that took place in Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. um, the weekend of this uh, – the Ann Arbor Comic Arts Festival. And I had spent a lot of my early adult adulthood – living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, I attended some of the very first Ann Arbor Comic Arts Festivals years ago. Um, So to be recognized by such a great group of people and a great jury and um, in honor of Dwayne McDuffie, whose work I loved, um, it was really, really, really awesome to be there and to talk. uh, And it was just a, a huge thrill and a great weekend there. So, uh, were you a fan of McDuffie through his comics, through his animation, a little bit of both? Yeah, I mean, I said this at the award ceremony, but, um, you know, I got most of my comics when I was a kid through, like, a mail catalog. I can't remember what the like, what the actual, like, mailing company was. Um, but, you know, I would see all these, like, promotional images um, for the Milestone comics, like, when they were launching, and the promo art looked great, and the characters looked awesome. So I read a bunch of those early Milestone comics, like Static, of course, um, which Dwayne McDuffie created, and he was one of the co-founders of Milestone Media. Um, So it just, you know, I loved those comics. I loved that they showed characters that weren't like me and lived in areas that I wasn't familiar with. Um, They kind of widened my sense of the world, um, and hopefully... Hopefully everyone understands the, the value of reading something that shows, tells the story of someone that's not like them. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, real, real quick, because we are here to talk about Cardboard Kingdom. You know, for those who aren't familiar, what is sort of the general elevator pitch for, for Cardboard Kingdom? Well, it's a book that follows a bunch of different kids who all live in the same neighborhood. And each of them has a costume and a character that they play as, whether it's a sorceress or a monster or a robot. And so the book follows each individual kid and tells their story. Uh, but all of the stories interweave and the characters play with each other because, of course, they all live in each other's neighborhood. And, you know, they pl- have adventures spanning backyards and driveways and garages. Uh, and I wrote each um, chapter of the book with a different creator, 10 different creators uh, in total. Um, and a lot of those stories were inspired by the characters or the creator's own life experiences. Um, so it's it's sort of a unified book, but also tells a lot of different stories and a, little, a lot of different topics, addressing how different kids relate to their character and their role playing. Like, what are they working through in their imaginary make-believe play? That, that's great. Um, working with that many writers, how did that process sort of change? change or did it change you know your original vision for for what the book was um i mean you know i sort of i had a a website where for a few months in 2015 i had i allowed anyone to send in their idea based Mm -hmm. on sort of the vision i laid out for the book um and you know back then i had never published a comic by my you know by myself i wasn't sure if anyone would even want to send in their idea because why would they trust me with their story um, so, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted the book to look like, 
but from from some of the very first submissions it became clear that that this could really 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 work and it could tell really meaningful powerful stories mm-hmm. uh like my my collaborator michael's story the gargoyle was one of the first submissions i got and i thought oh my gosh this is like an amazing emotional powerful layered story um so it, it really it gave me confidence and excitement from like a very 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 early stage that this could really be like a great book um and it's that kind of confidence and certainty that I don't necessarily have when I'm writing and drawing a book entirely by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of as you're, do you remember how many submissions you got, you know, when you were going about the process of, of assembling your, your, your writer squad, so to speak? Um, I, yeah, it was like somewhere around 120. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's a big number or a small number. You know, some people sent in a few story ideas. Um, you know, I was really excited. And if I had had any more, it would have been impossible for me to choose who to include in the book. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like if I were to do it again, um, I feel like I'd probably get like a thousand, you know, just because I, you know, th- this model has been proven and like people understand what I actually am asking for. I think it would be really cool someday to have kids submit their ideas for characters, even if they just played small roles in the book. Um, because of course, whenever I do a school visit or a library visit, all sure. the kids, all the kids want to be in the next book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, some of their ideas are like super, super awesome. Um, so I, you know, I, I, hopefully, fingers crossed that could happen someday. That, that that's back matter, baby. <laughs> yeah. All those yeah. kids drawing, kids drawings, and everything. That yeah. Absolutely. Um, gen- uh, generally, you know, were you kind of in, in originally cobbling this all together? You know, were you drawing on your own sort of childhood experiences, or, or you know, what was your uh, sort of a, the the er inspiration for all this? Yeah, I mean, sort of the the one of the founding characters of the whole project was Jack the Sorceress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had spent many years. Um, as a an illustrator most known for drawing drag queens mm-hmm. and yeah. I was kind of trying to think through why I liked that so much <laughs> like what what appealed to me about drag and as I thought about it I you know it was clear to me that it was all about transforming yourself with your own creativity and talent and make-believe and bravado to inhabit a new character um, and so Jack the Sorceress sort of sprung out of that exploration um, I had been looking for a story to collaborate on just in general. I thought, you know, hey, I should really try some sort of cool collaborative comic arrangement. So years and years ago, I think 2013, um, I came to my friend Jay Fuller, who uh, had been working on a great web comic called The Boy in Pink Earmuffs. And um, I asked him if he would want to work on a, a short story featuring Jack the Sorceress. So we did like a 15, 16 page story about Jack. Um, and we really had a great time, and I finished it. We actually were submitting it to an, an anthology that didn't end up taking it, but we really liked it, and we sold it at comic conventions just as a little mini-comic. Um, and we both were like, it would be really cool to have a whole book with a whole bunch of different characters, but we just weren't sure who those characters would be. Mm-hmm. So it sort of left it was left on the back burner for a few years until I finally had the idea of sort of crowdsourcing it of letting anyone send in their idea. And that's 
that's when the ball got rolling again. Yeah, you can see Jack, Jack's sorceress persona when you get into the sort of the aged up, you know, fully imagined versions. I can completely see that sort of drag inspiration with just how grand the gesture is and how big the costume is. It's amazing. Right. It- it's well well thanks. I mean it's like definitely owes a lot to the character design of Maleficent from like the classic Sleeping Beauty um Disney films. Um, you know, like the really exaggerated gestures, like you said, the shapes, the silhouette. Um but but yeah, I I, I you know, I think a lot of drag uh, uh drag queen fans and drag queens themselves are inspired by comics, by fantasy, uh by Disney divas. Um, like Urs- like there are so many drag queens who do Ursula and Maleficent. Um, and, you know, I-, I think a lot of young gay boys grow up idolizing these like powerful, fashionable, stylish divas, uh, whether it's, you know, Broadway divas or Disney divas or Emma Frost. You know, mm-hmm. I loved Emma Frost as a kid. Um, so. So, yeah, Jack is definitely channeling all, all of that. Uh, I love that. You know, uh, you know, looking at your at your website, uh, kind of running up to to this episode, I noticed the the heavy drag influence. Obviously, you know, there was a lot of of kind of RuPaul's Drag Race uh, tribute art there, and uh, you know, this was this was kind of a part of the Venn diagram of comics fan that I I, I don't think that I'd really considered until this year. We had uh, you're actually the second guest that we've had on where you know we talked a lot about drag culture we actually we had Cedar grace it was like the we the monday after uh drag con had happened uh, oh right out west yeah so you know we went deep down that rabbit hole but you know part, the thing i love and the thing that that really makes it all make sense is i was looking at all these the you know all the trivia and i'm like man these are like these are like marvel universe series 2 trading cards for drag queens yes this well all said. fits <laughs> No, I mean it's all about costumes, bright colors, exact. Like, I I'm obsessed with um, kind of a heightened sense of reality, of something mm-hmm. kind of grander, more almost cartoonish uh, about interpreting our world. And that's what my favorite drag queens do. That's what superhero comics do. That's what Pixar films do. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of distilling the world and kind of making it bigger and bolder and brighter um, than we might see it in the everyday moments. Um, if you were to transform those into uh, trading cards, what kind of stats do you put on the back? Well, probably charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. That's um, <laughs> that's a classic uh, uh, stat from RuPaul's Drag Race itself. Um, it is an acronym. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, I I've I've actually done drag art for a drag bingo game and a drag party game, which did have like character cards like that with with stats and traits that were pretty pretty funny that is awesome um looking uh, ahead two books ahead uh because there's doodleville in the middle obviously but you know we you're already starting to talk about uh cardboard kingdom uh roar of the uh roar of the beast yeah uh yes yes uh 2021 but, uh, you know, do you foresee yourself working with uh, the same group of writers, expanding the pool, going to some of the ones that, you know, maybe didn't make the cut the first time around, but you still really wanted to work with them? Um, so, so yeah, as you mentioned, so my next book is a solo book that I, I 
did called Doodleville, and that'll be out next summer. Mm-hmm. And then the next year after that, 2021, uh, the next Cardboard Kingdom book will be out. And that, as you said, is called Roar of the Beast. And that features all the same creators and all the same characters. Um, you know, I debated whether to introduce any new characters or creators um, for the sequel, but I just felt like people developed such a strong emotional attachment to the characters in the sure. first book that it just feel like a, felt like a shame to like leave them in the dust or something. I just felt like there were more stories to be told. Uh, so, so, and we had a really fun story idea planned. So Roar of the Beast follows the kids as they get ready, um, the same kids as they get ready the week leading up to Halloween. So I felt like by changing the season and the sort of context, uh, it gives a really different feel to the book and uh, and a very different, um, really different plot line, a very di- really different structure than book one. Uh, now, will that include the, uh, the Halloween.exe short that uh, is on your website? Uh, yeah, so there's a short robots, robot-centered story called Halloween.exe, and we did initially intend for that basically to be an excerpt from book two, but it doesn't seem like it will be. <laughs> like, I love that story. Um, uh, I love uh, Vid Allager's work writing the robot, um, but actually we came up with better stuff for book two. Um, like... Like, I assume that those would be some of the best jokes in Cardboard Kingdom Book 2, but we have, like, a very ambitious story, uh, and we have some really great moments with the robot in Book 2, mm-hmm. but we we just weren't really able to fit that specific scene into the book. So I'm not exactly sure where that fits into the canon. I assume that it takes place earlier than Book 2 starts off. I, I mean, I mean that's, that's great where you can mine uh, bonus content out of it like that. But uh, you know, uh, kind of moving back to uh, to Doodleville. Obviously, we skipped ahead a little bit, and you know, mentioned yourself. This is a solo effort. Um, you know, I, at first, well, first off, you know, without you know, we're not looking for spoilers by any stretch. But you know, what what is what can you say about the book? Well, I consider Doodleville kind of a uh, a sister series to Cardboard Kingdom. Um, they're both aimed at the uh, same age range. They're both the exact same size, pretty much the same length. It's obviously still me doing the art. Um, and it's also like really rooted in creativity and a lot of questions around creativity. But um, it definitely is intended to have a different feel and it does center around one specific character but with a really expansive supporting cast. And it's actually a little bit magical realist. In Cardboard Kingdom, um, when you see the the fantastical creatures coming to life in Cardboard Kingdom, it's just the kids' imagination as they wear their cardboard costumes. But in Doodleville, um, it's about a young girl, Drew, whose drawings come to life. Uh, And they are living drawings. They're two-dimensional, and they scamper across her sketchbook pages. They scamper across her desk, along the wall. She draws an entire uh, town for them on her bedroom wall called Doodleville. And... um, so it's really whimsical and fun, but it kind of explores the dark side of creativity, um, kind of the anxiety and doubt that can plague a young artist. Um, and she inadvertently creates a monster and that she needs to defeat. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll destroy everything she's ever drawn. Um, 
so 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 yeah it's it's similarly interested in in kind of, kind of creativity and imagination and collaboration but this book i wrote and drew myself um and it's something that's been percolating and, and working its way through my brain for more than 10 years Ah, oh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, without, you know, we're uh, how or first of all, how far along in the process are you uh, on that book? So Doodleville is entirely done. Um, you know, I'm working with uh, Penguin Random House, which is you know a giant book publisher, and the way that things work in in the book publishing world is that you finish your book basically at least a year before it comes out. Yeah. And um, so I just finished Doodleville and sent all of that off. And now, as you said, I'm working on Cardboard Kingdom Book 2 uh, right now. Um, so I, I've been sharing little sneak peeks of that. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, we're, right now we're working on like the back matter and stuff like that for Doodleville. And that's why I was looking through all my old sketchbooks because a lot of, a lot, or at least some of the characters in Doodleville are actually characters that I've had in my sketchbooks for more than 20 years. A lot of Doodleville is kind of about how you kind of grow up drawing certain characters over and over again and how certain characters grow and evolve in ways that you didn't expect. Um, And that's totally my own experience of having these weird characters that I can't stop drawing and they kind of morph and change over the years as my own interests change, my own self-image changes. and so it was really, really fun to kind of incorporate all these ancient, ancient characters of mine into this world. Um, so, so yeah, I it's uh, it's really strange <laughs> to do that, um, but I, I'm hoping people respond well. Uh, so, are these the ones that started out with the giant shoulder pads and the pouches and the big guns <laughs> from the beginning? So, no, I mean, I so there there is there is a superhero character in Doodleville. Um, and he is a character that I've had a, with me a long time, um, but I stay. I'm staying away from uh, any of the like grosser, outrageous '90s stuff, <laughs> sure. especially because it's so dated, you yes. know. And and honestly, those those were all style, no substance. Like they were they were like cool poses, but without any actual story behind them or character behind them. And so they just haven't had any resonance or staying power with me. It's kind of like the sillier, stranger characters that have taken me a longer time to kind of figure out. Sure. Um, that made it into Doodleville. Yeah. 90s comic art is the equivalent of uh, sugary breakfast cereal. Very true. Yes. Yeah. Um. This being your first full-length solo book, uh, after having such a you know a fairly large support system with all the writers on Cardboard Kingdom, you know, do you do you feel more like you're working without a net? Um, well, I was complaining about that feeling to my editor, and she was like, "Well, Chad, you're not making it alone. You're making it with me." <laughs> and point. I said, "Oh, that's great." <laughs> um, so, you know. It, it did feel very different to work on Doodleville by myself, and it did feel much scarier, and, and there have been a lot of times when I wondered if it's any good. Um, but, you know, I've had a lot of friends contribute feedback at early stages, and actually some of my Cardboard Kingdom collaborators gave me incredible feedback early on that really helped shape the rest of the book. Um, so, it, you know, I've sought help and feedback along the way when I felt like I needed it. Um, and my editor, Marissa DeNovis at, at Knopf, um, has been super amazing. And 
and uh, a constant cheerleader uh, amidst any self-doubt I had. And of course, what was so nice about kind of the self-referential nature of Doodleville is that any of the artistic struggles I was having kind of helped inform and fuel the main character's own struggles within the book. So, uh, circling back to Cardboard Kingdom, because time is a flat circle and so is this podcast, <laughs> is, I, I'm, this is a question that's sort of like asking if you have a favorite child or a favorite pet, but is there one story in there that maybe is not a favorite, but came out better than you could have anticipated, or was the one that resonates with you the most um you know uh that is like you said (laughs) asking someone to pick their favorite kid and like whenever i do a school visit one of the first questions is who's your favorite character (laughs) and of course it's just like uh you know every character is in the book because there's something about them that i love and think is a story worth telling um like i said jack the sorceress is kind of the character i relate to the most but um in so many cases, uh, in some cases, the, my collaborators brought new life to characters that I never would have expected. Um, for example, the robot character actually started out just as like a side character without her own story. Um, she just showed up in a few early stories. And late in the process of Cardboard Kingdom, I told my collaborators, hey, if any of you have any additional stories in mind with any of these several supporting characters that we've been using throughout the book, let me know. And uh, Vid, my collaborator Vid Allager, sent me this amazing pitch for the robot where um, she has trouble making friends, and so her dad suggests having a robot-themed birthday party. And I just loved it, and uh, Vid, you know, I had created the character of the robot a long time ago um, as sort of... um, an avatar from my own sense of social anxiety and awkwardness that I've had throughout my life where I, I would find myself reverting to kind of a robot voice when I felt super uncomfortable and was not sure how to process the situation. And um, so that was just kind of like a kernel of a character idea, but Vid sort of brought to life this fully fleshed out hilarious character um, that I think stands out as one of the most distinctive cast members of Cardboard Kingdom because she's just so funny and strange and has such a difficult time understanding what anyone else is talking about um so so i relate most to the robot and the sorceress and i love reading the robot story to kids because i get to do the robot voice and (laughs) and and her her jokes are just so good that's great Uh, i i read the book probably six months ago now and I mean, I loved every chapter. I have a soft spot for the gargoyle, partially because Grim Avengers of the Night are kind of my jam. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I have way 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 too much Batman stuff. It's sort of my thing. Um, yeah, but, that, but I mean, and also the Disney Afternoon cartoon gargoyles is a whole, is a touchstone for you. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, one of the things that I really appreciated as I was reading the book is that you do this whole thing with uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion, that all these characters are so different, but and that is clearly part of what drives the book and what part of what you're trying to say, but it's 
the story and the fun of it is never lost in the message, all in big caps. How was it working with the writers to try to find, to stay on the good side of the line of telling the story and saying something important without saying something important drowning the story? Well, I made it, well, I tried to make it super clear from the very start, like literally on the original website where people could send in their ideas. Um, I made it clear that I, I wanted to have diverse stories telling a lot of different kinds of experiences, um, but that I specifically didn't want any story to like boil down to like a moral. I didn't want anything cheesy and simplistic like creativity is good or be nice to each other. I just didn't that I was interested in telling kind of more complicated, richer, layered stories. Um, so throughout every step of the process, like as we would talk through a story and, and figure out where it should end, I was always interested in something throwing in an additional wrinkle or something to make things just a little bit richer and 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 complicated. Uh, so, like you said, with the gargoyle, you know, mo- we tried to keep things quite sunny and happy, but to have legitimate struggles that these kids are wrestling with. And the gargoyle story, as is obvious to anyone who reads the book, is is one of the darkest, sort of most bittersweet stories, because the the young boy guarding, you know, the, he's this grim, dark uh, hero of the night, but who, the enemy that he's trying to protect his home from is his estranged dad. And so when he succeeds in chasing his dad away, he feels victorious for a second, but then realizes that, of course, it was a bittersweet victory because he's distanced his father and, and you know, told him to stay away. And so... I don't know. It, it 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 wasn't that hard to find the right balance in that regard just because we were just trying to tell good captivating stories on a wide variety of topics, you know. Mm-hmm. Um while while you know there there maybe maybe there were a few jokes that that were a little bit too dark or too over kids heads that we cut out early on. Um, but there really weren't that many changes once an editor came in to work on the book where they were pointing out like, oh, this is too simplistic or, oh, this is too complicated. Like we were all kind of shocked at um, at how well received our book was within our, within our publisher. Um, you mentioned doing a lot of uh, school business. And one thing I was curious is, you know, do you have a sense of how uh, people or, or how your readers are getting their hands on it, whether it be through libraries or bookstore channels or you know reading it online or even you know traditional comic shops stocking it with their you know all ages section um i you know one of the cool things about you know having a book out for just over a year um, a kid's book out is that it's sort of shown me just how incredible the infrastructure is of thousands and thousands of people who all want kids to read and support it and make that happen um, so it's it's definitely shown me that like librarians are the superheroes of kids comics, mm. um, and and kids as you probably are aware, kids comics have just been booming um, as as they you know there there have been a few breakout hits over the last ten years with like Raina Telgemeier and Dogman, yep. 
Um, and so librarians see that their kids are desperate to read graphic novels. And so a lot of librarians are looking for good graphic novels to stock on their shelves. Um, and so, so I, I get the sense, especially because a lot of my school visits are facilitated by librarians to bring me to their school, um, that so many kids, uh, you know, make, make lots of use of, of their school libraries when, when they're there, you know, um, not every school has a library or even, you know, a full-time librarian. Um, but it's clear that they're, that kids love to read and they love to read comic books. Um, I have a, I have an eight year old son and, uh, you know, he is definitely, he is the target market for where it's all trending now. Cause if you look on his bookshelf, it is, it's all the dogmans and a good number of the diary of a wimpy kid books. And, mm. uh, you know, it's funny just you know looking over the premise of this book and, and and reading your stuff. I keep remembering this time. It was like last last year, maybe two years ago, but like he was just starting to make friends in the neighborhood that we lived in. Uh, you know, all of the, all of a sudden, it just seemed like all these kids that were in his 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 age group were coming out of the woodwork. Um, but you know, we didn't know any of them yet. And there was one day where uh, these two little girls came to the house looking for Logan, and uh, they ended up, uh, they they ended up going like around the corner, which scared you know like all the parents <laughs> because we didn't know where they were. But they had taken a bunch of the recycling from our respective houses and were like marching around the corner to where there was this little like inset that leads into a wooded area. And I keep thinking, oh crap, did we crack down on them as they were about to build their own cardboard kingdom? Now I feel Aww. guilty. <laughs> Yeah, I do wonder about that. You know, I think one of the most unrealistic things potentially about Cardboard Kingdom is the sense of autonomy uh, that the kids have in their own neighborhood to to go to the, their friends' houses, play in backyards, have adventures without the supervision of parents. And that's like informed by my own childhood of growing up in central Wisconsin in like a little suburban little town uh, where we had just like that free reign within our neighborhood. Um and I realize that a lot of kids aren't necessarily afforded that that latitude anymore. But I mean, there, there is a certain aspiral, aspirational nature to that kind of storytelling. You know, you want them to kind of develop their imaginations that way. So. Right. Absolutely. And 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 hopefully play as well and constructively as we see in Cardboard Kingdom. Yeah. So uh, on this, a slight tangent to other all ages media um having read the book the other the only other particular thing that jumped out that scratched the same itch for me that reading this did was steven universe do you watch steven by any chance yeah yeah i mean i i watch it on hulu and i think they're at least a season behind they so are I'm like a season behind waiting um but no, Steven Universe was sort of, um, it was like a, a really, really important reference for us and for a lot of the members on the team um, as as a show that handled topics of compassion and gender um, in a really thoughtful way for kids of the target age range that we were interested in capturing. So um, I... So we referenced it multiple times as like, can we get away with telling stories like this? <laughs> and um, you know, I it, it was 
I read some great um, article or blog post or something by Rebe- Rebecca Sugar um, where I think that they kind of laid out how much of a struggle all of that was, <laughs> you know, how, how a, a constant uphill climb it was um, to tell those stories. And I think if I had known how much of a struggle it had been, maybe I would have been more self-conscious about Cardboard Kingdom. But just because I saw the end product and saw how like joyous and well-received it was, um, that gave me a lot of confidence of putting out Cardboard Kingdom into the world. Yeah, I would wager as the new season is starting with a movie in early September that the fifth season should... That'll be the sixth season. The fifth should be hitting Hulu in the not too distant future oh i hope so because i am dying for that movie because it is one of the very few shows that my wife and i watch when it airs anymore it's like oh, you know, awesome. Stephen is that is appointment television for yeah. us and it just oh and there are some that some that we've watched a hundred times and they still choke us up every time yeah, yeah, I it's 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 sort of set the standard for me, um, as well as like classic Disney films and Pixar films of like what I was hoping to, um, desperately hoping to be at, at anywhere near the same level as stuff like that. So, kind of a, a, another uh, random question, just sort of gauging uh, influences. But uh, were you a big uh, Lego maniac as a child, perchance? Um, funny enough, I wasn't. Um, I was more of an action figure kid. I still have a mantle full of old He-Man and G.I. Joe and other obscure characters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, yeah, I didn't like following, following instructions. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, I wasn't a big Lego guy. Okay. Uh, just thinking about the, the nature uh, of or kind of the rhythm of the jokes, uh, you know, and what I was was reading. Have you ever been? Have you ever thought about, or have you ever been approached to work in the medium of of comic strips? Um, I did a, a comic strip web comic for a number of years in my twenties that is um, disappeared off the internet, <laughs> um, and I really love the comic timing of comic strips. Um, yeah, I love a good comic strip, but you know, the the kind of visual storytelling I'm trying to do just suits itself better to the more kind of flexible space of a full page. Sure, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Going back to uh, RuPaul's Drag Race because I definitely want to uh, talk about this a little bit more. Um, how long have you been doing the the fan art for uh, for the show? Um. Uh, I think I did it for about seven years. Okay. Once, once Cardboard Kingdom came out, I kind of decided to step away from it just sure. because, like, I the drag race stuff was like the serendipitous, amazing opportunity that came along mm-hmm. unexpectedly. It was like a, a really exciting surprise. Um, but kind of my goal ever since finishing college had been to be a graphic novelist and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent my entire twenties struggling and failing at that, and um, the drag race illustration allowed me a new outlet for my talents and interests, and it gave me a new audience and and, and a way of making a living for a number of years. Um, but once Cardboard Kingdom came out, and like 
you know, was doing fairly well and my publisher wanted more books from me, you know, I decided to just focus on that full time. Yeah. I, I, I was on the on the point of kind of burning out with the drag race stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I was running my own Etsy store and printing thousands of prints every year and going to drag con and and really hustling as like a small business owner, um, sending out Etsy orders myself, going to the post office a few times a week. Uh, and once I had the option of spending all my time just making the books I wanted to make, I felt like I owed it to myself and all, all those years of trying um, to just focus full time on that. Um, you mentioned that the drag race stuff came as a surprise. Uh, how so? Well, like I said, I had been doing web comics. I had been doing self-published comics for much of my 20s. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be watching Drag Race. And I was really inspired by some of the queens at the start of a new season. And just did some really, really, really simple, fun fan art of them. Um, and tagged them on Twitter. And this, you know, this, oh my god, it must have been like seven, eight years ago, like I said. And and they were all like, oh, cool, that's awesome, and shared it. And it immediately became the most popular thing I'd ever made. Um, and so I said, oh, this was at the very start, the first episode of the season. So I said, okay, well, this is like a natural illustration series to do. Every episode, I'll draw my favorite few looks. And it just sort of snowballed from there. It was really, really, really awesome and amazing to be embraced by that community. That is awesome. Um, something else that, that uh, piqued my interest on the site, under the illustration part, you know, it's got some very great, very playful uh, X-Men art. I think my favorite one is the one of Colossus with Kick Me written on his back in refrigerator magnets. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it, it was awesome. Um, what are some of, you know, you mentioned X-Men as being sort of an early part of your fandom. You know, do you recall any specific stories that, you know, stood out to you from that time? Well, I I had this weird split reading of X-Men in my childhood that okay. took me a long time to unravel because <laughs> I both had a subscription to X-Men Classic and a subscription to like the ongoing X-Men series. And X-Men Classic was of course like reprinting old stories from I don't know how many years before. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like reading these two different timelines of X-Men. And I think that there still is like a tiny gap where the two series never quite met that I've never read. But otherwise I've read <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of issues of X-Men. Um, so, you know, one of the early iconic ones was, it was of course, Dark Phoenix. Um, even back then it was kind of a legendary storyline and I had hunt, hunt, hunted down the trade paperback um, and and found it so kind of twisty, turny, dark, sad, poignant. Um, I think it was kind of one of my first exposures to superhero comic book storytelling that can go to kind of a deeper emotional place than you expect from most superhero comics. Absolutely. And of course, Dark Phoenix, another you know comics diva that many, many, many drag queens and gay boys uh, revere. <laughs> along along with Emma Frost who has only gotten better with time yes absolutely uh, so Matt I, I teed this next question up specifically for you yeah because I, I like to ask guests about their cats because I love my cat and she occasionally is our third co-host as she will occasionally oh. hop up next to me and just stare at me while I podcast so mm. tell us about your cats um, I have 
two cats. Their names are Ivy and Edie. Um, they are sisters. They are tiny cats, middle-aged. Um, and yes, as soon as I start a phone call, my cat Ivy will immediately jump into my lap and demand petting. And I, <laughs> I had to repeatedly remove her from my lap because she was just too distracting. Um, and yeah, they're really, they cuddle, they're adorable, and um, I take far too many photos of them. <laughs> yeah, yep, you, you, that, that, that is Cat Person 101, the, oh, here, let me show you my phone with the 8 million pictures of my cat. Yes, I have nieces and a godson, but see, look at my cat. The nice thing is that my husband is just as obsessed with them as I am, so he's the one I send all the cat photos to, and he actually <laughs> is interested in them. I, I work at home, and he does not, and so he wants periodic updates about how they're doing. Oh, yeah. I work from home some of the week. My wife works from home other days of the week sometimes, and so there will often be the cat photo exchange when Bess is doing something either remarkably cute or remarkably dumb, or a little bit of both. Yeah, because of course. She is both ridiculously cute and ridiculously dumb. I love her very much, but she is... <laughs> you know, they, 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 there's that thing about cats being, you know, having this native cunning and being clever right. not my cat she runs right. into glass doors oh so sweet so yeah it's kind of a hard lesson like i grew up with cats and the cats i grew up with like you said i i just thought of them as like my companions and i would have entire conversations with them as a kid and i really felt like they were like my best friend and it wasn't until i got cats as an adult and i was like oh <laughs> You're not some like mystically wise creature. <laughs> You're ridiculous. Um, you know. So, like you said, it's both a, a, a wonderful mix of cuteness and stupidity and silliness. We, uh, my my wife and I have two miniature dachshunds, and the younger one, uh, who is four, maybe five. Uh, we don't know her birthday, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, she will have this. She has this habit of, when she's sleeping, leaving her tongue to stick various lengths mm -hmm. out of her mouth, and so those will usually be the pictures that we take and then send to each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, what What are you reading right now? Um, I've been reading a lot of novels lately, um, but. Uh, you know, one book I picked up just recently at Challengers Comics in Chicago um, was Peter Wartman's Stonebreaker. Are you familiar with this series at all? No, I am not. Uh, oh, I it's one of the few books, one of the few graphic novels I've read this year that just had me kind of like shook from the craft and like the mastery of it. Like the closest comparison I, I have in terms of the line work and composition and and poses and, and, and acting in it is to Jeff Smith, you know, Ooh. it's like bone level shit. Um, uh, Stonebreaker is the second in the series. I can't remember the first, the first book's name, um, but they're like a really, really great all ages fantasy, kind of dark and mysterious. Um, if you ever, I'm a huge video gamer. If you've ever played Shadow of the Colossus, like it's very much that. Okay. Um, like really artful. I think he's, he's doing the art for several um, Avatar Airbender graphic novels right now, and that seems like a perfect comparison and fit. Um, do you have any uh, signings or conventions coming up uh, in the near future? Um, I'll be at FlameCon in New York City later this month. 
Well. So I'll have a table and I'm happy to sign stuff and chat and yeah, I'm really looking, really looking forward to it. That's great. Matt, we'll see you there. Uh, yes, you will. Oh, awesome. <laughs> cool. Um, as we're, as we're wrapping up, how can people follow you online if you in fact wish to be followed? Um, my tag is chadcell one on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and my website is chadcellcomics.com. All right. Well, congratulations on being the uh, number one Chad Cell on Twitter. And thank you. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for doing the show. Yeah, it was a treat. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Uh, finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.